Hello, and welcome back to Kvikminderpod, an Icelandic cinema podcast. I'm Rob Watts, and on this podcast, me and my good friend Ellie Cawthorn chat about Icelandic film. Thanks for joining us for the third leg of our journey, where we're actually staying put in Reykjavik. So far on the pod, we've discussed Hruta, or Rams, from 2015, and last week was Baltasar Komako's debut feature, 101 Reykjavik, from the year 2000. This time, we have a much more recent film that perhaps wouldn't exist without it. So without further ado, hello Ellie. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. The sun is shining and it feels like a good day. How are you? I'm good, thanks too. But I do have like an incredibly delicious smell wafting in from next door. We've got a beef ragu in the slow cooker. Ooh. And so that's calling to me. But other than that, I'm, my attention <laughs> is fully on you. <laughs> we'll have a nice little chat and then you can go and eat the delicious food. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like an ideal afternoon. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about Let Me Fall from 2018, uh, a rather contemporary film set in modern Reykjavik, unlike last week. <laughs> which was uh, modern at the time, but uh, it's a very different place these days. Yeah. And this is directed by a guy called Baldwin Seta, Baldwin Zed, which is interesting because Zed isn't even a letter in the Icelandic alphabet. How did he end up with Zed as his name then? So, interesting story. His surname is Zofaniason, and in 1973, they decided to just remove Zed from the alphabet. But it still exists in old place names and people names and things like that. So his father, obviously Zofania, um, lenses has a Z in it, and that's where the Z comes from. And in Icelandic, Z is pronounced as Seta. So it's Baldvin Seta. My mind is already blown. We're five minutes into this. I can't comprehend that in 19... 19- in the 1970s, they decided to delete the word, the letter Z. Do you think we've come this far with Z? Just leave it. It's fine. Yeah, it's absolutely mad, isn't it? I don't fully understand the reasoning, but I guess if words weren't using it, then why have it? Worthy of a whole podcast conversation of itself, I'm sure. Oh, of course. It would be fascinating, I think. But yes, Baldwin Sater, uh, Let Me Fall. And I will go ahead and give us a little synopsis. Please do. In contemporary Reykjavik, 15-year-old Magnea is a smart student and gymnast living a typical teenage life. When she makes a new friend in Stella, she is introduced to an entirely different world, one of partying, sex, and most dangerously, drugs. As the couple's friendship grows and intensifies, so too does the drug-taking, and both their lives begin a downward spiral. I think, I didn't want to go too too far with the details there. Mm -hmm. Uh, We'll leave that for the discussion, but... That that sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a relatively straightforward narrative in that it's a, like you say, a spiral downwards. Obviously, there's ups and downs within that and narrative devices. But I think if you were going to characterise it, then that does so nicely. Yeah. It's not a happy film, though, is it? No, it's definitely not. So I watched this um, last night and... It's incredibly engrossing, isn't it? Involving, but you it's not a film that you come away from and think, wow, I really enjoyed that. Um, it's a different sensation it gives you, doesn't it? It doesn't leave you massively uplifted, but that's not the point here, of course. No, exactly. I think the, the point is to shine a light on yeah. this subject, which was a serious, serious issue mm-hmm. in Iceland in the mid-noughties uh, and is still, to some degree... 
a problem. I think there's been a big opioid epidemic running around in Reykjavik. Um, so this is all very kind of current political news, stuff that needs addressing and that the whole country should really engage with. I think of all the films that we've watched so far, again, I, I wouldn't say this is one I've enjoyed the most, but this is definitely the one that has engrossed me the most and I felt most involved in. I think for me, yeah, it's kind of trying to make that political point perhaps about um, the opioid crisis in Iceland, but it feels just so natural and human and realistic and empathetic, I think as well, mm -hmm. that it that I don't feel like it is an overly like polemical political drama. I think anything that it achieves in that realm is kind of because it's so powerful as a human story and one about relationships and addiction and stuff absolutely yeah it's it's a sort of it's a friend it's a story of friendship mm -hmm. of love and it just happens to be set in this sort of underworld of Reykjavik we've gone from last week talking about the hip nightlife to the much seedier <laughs> darker underworld those characters would look somewhat out of their depth in this world wouldn't they the man with the lizard <laughs> on his shoulder from Reykjavik quiet yeah the stoners just mum bumbling around to uh to more hardcore you know serious drug addicts <laughs> Hvað heldur hún So we focus on Magnea, mm. uh, and what do you, what do we make of Magnea at the beginning? She seems like a pretty normal girl, right? Yeah, and I, I have to say, I think the performances throughout are are really impressive, and the kind of slow changes that we see in the characters are really believable. So I think when we first meet her, it's that classic thing of she she almost doesn't give too much away. And I quite like that about her character because as as an addict, she could have easily been, you know, I'm off the rails, I'm totally a mm -hmm. wild child. But we don't really get that from her. She's much more shy and kind of passive. And she's taken along with other people, really, isn't she? She's not massively a driving force herself at the beginning. No, she she's obviously quite smart. And we even get told that. But she's fascinated by Stella and mm. her kind of world and how different it is 
And she she sort of just the camera lingers on her face, just letting her letting us watch her think mm. and sort of take in what's going on. And she's it's that interest, first and foremost, that sort of takes mm. us with her into that world. Yeah, I think you're right there, that especially in the scenes where she's younger, she kind of is our eyes and ears, isn't she? Into mm. this um, new kind of social set and this dodgy underworld. But I do think that kind of shifts later on and that later on you see her more as other people would see her when she's become an addict and stuff. But definitely at the start, she is kind of our perception of this world and it's can be kind of exciting and scary at the same time completely uh in that in that sort of teenage yeah i'm sure you felt the same way in your teens like everything was exciting and exotic and you know a bit dangerous but we've got it we want to explore yeah those, those avenues those early house party scenes gave me like oh my god real heart palpitations you know the points where mm-hmm. the the older adult well adults really yeah gate crash the parties and everything starts to turn a bit made me feel really uncomfortable because I think it it shoots straight back to everybody's been maybe not everybody but most people have been that teenager where you're on the edge of this feels a bit like it's going down an avenue I don't want it to I would have been the Helga in this situation I I never held a house party and (laughs) and I completely I side with Magnea totally when she's holding a party in her own house and she's not even she hasn't really gone down that far down the no. whole stellar route at this point but her stepmom has this like collection of hats and she's sort of quite concerned that they mm. might go missing and that would be bad I mean and in terms of what could happen at house party that wouldn't be the worst thing but you're always sort of worried about breaking stuff or upsetting your parents by doing the wrong thing and like you said, when these people turn up to this house party, this the, the big kind of hench dude with the tattoos, it just becomes a much more sinister and uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. And I would not, I mean, if that was me, I'd be like, I wouldn't know how to get rid of them. And I wouldn't know, I just wouldn't know what to do. Something I did think was, was done quite well was the kind of banality of, drug taking and especially like the first time that she injects drugs Mm -hmm. i'm not really exactly sure what drugs it is but i don't think it's specifically made clear Mm. they're like the early scenes they're injecting ritalin i Mm. think uh because magnea asked for something stimulating yeah and they've been robbing the pharmacy of various prescription Mm. drugs so it stands to reason that that would be sort of the gateway drug i've no idea further on yeah what it is they're on it maybe it's the same thing but I, I think it was interesting though like yeah the banality of how she just kind of slips into it almost it's not this big moment where they're they're like are you gonna take drugs wait let me prepare for this life-changing moment um it's just a kind of par for the course daily oh it's no big deal and then before you know it, it's slipping out of control. Yeah, and it is. It's so kind of matter of fact. She's sort of just like, hmm. I think does she she snorts something during the house party, mm. and that's the point where her friend, her pr- previous friend Helga, leaves because mm. she's obviously uncomfortable around drugs and these weird people. 
But that time that she shoots up the next morning, it's so just like, oh, I need to perk up. Give us a give us a shot. Like, I I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not good with needles particularly. (laughs) So to so to watch people doing drugs, especially Mm. injecting drugs is not an easy watch. And she's just sort of like, yeah, go on then in my arm. Yeah. And it's that kind of it's just matter of fact and like yeah let's try it i think it's it was an interesting choice as well for that to be the morning the morning after to be the kind of first time that she really goes off the deep end in terms of drug taking rather Mm. than some crazy party scene it's actually quite a low-key situation um which i thought was interesting that little mundane scene where they're in the bed Mm. is very just mundane and let's just do this and she's obviously she obviously just wants to get the house back to normal for her parents and it's looking for the quickest way to feel good about it and get it done but it is the beginning of that falling into a cycle of addiction and one thing i've i noticed like there's a lot of comparisons with from this film with there's a, a classic film called christiana f from the 1980s which it. is a german film about a true story about a girl who a 13 year old girl who falls in with a bad crowd and becomes addicted to drugs and yeah it's kind of just follows her spiraling and trying to get out of it and and all of this and it's got a great Bowie soundtrack (laughs) (laughs) but one of the things I noticed in that and in this is that people like the the characters who are already drug takers Mm. are they they always say the words you should stay in school don't do it but they're so half-hearted about it that almost instantly they're just they're seen spurring them on or or providing them with the, their first ever hit, uh, and I just thought that was really interesting that they they act as if they care but really they don't. And actually, for the whole Magnea Stella relationship, it's obviously not off to a great start. Yeah, well, it definitely is. I made a note of this because it definitely is Stella that's kind of driving things forward always to begin with it's her saying come to this party it's her actually that tells her boyfriend tony to give um magnea the first injection isn't it yeah um so it's all kind of her fueling the fire and that was actually something that if i had any criticism of this film I wanted to know more about stella's backstory so she was kind of introduced to us quite cold as this as this bad girl, bad influence, but kind of passionate, exciting, fun person. But she's she's involved in this this group of people, like her boyfriend, with obviously who has the mum who is an addict. Mm-hmm. But we're not really given much information about her own family and how she has been brought into this world, or even how she and Magna have met, actually. Which no, I do wish we knew a bit more about. Yeah, totally. I made the exact same note. Like this it is Magnea's story mm-hmm. more than it is Stella's, yeah. but it would have been interesting to see how Stella got to the point she's at when we first meet her. Yeah. And again, even later on when, you know, Stella and Magnea go different ways and come out of it in different ways, how that was achieved. Mm. Um, because there's probably a good point to say, so the narrative is sort of divided between two timelines so to speak so the young teenage Stella and Magnea 
and the 30-something Stella Magnea 15 years later. And I, I should probably give a shout out to the actresses who played all of the characters yeah. because they are incredible. Yeah. Especially the teenage actresses. So as Magnea, it's Aileen Sif Haldorstatir and as Stella, it's Aaron Björk Jakobsdottir. And then as the older versions, we have Laura Johanna Jonsdottir and Kristin Thora Haraldsdottir. And they're all incredible. It's spectacular. And I think that something that the success of the film really hinges on is that the casting of the older and the younger versions works so well. So so often in these kind of age transplant dramas, you know, like when you... <laughs> I'm trying to think of some examples, some bad examples, but so often... Oh, The Crown, for example. Okay. So the cast gets swapped out for older actors, don't they? And I spend half my time watching that going, oh, but it's not... She's not really the same as before or somehow those things can quite often bug me in films. Like Claire Foy turning into Olivia Colman. Exactly. Especially when it's in a film where you're swap, swapping between the two timelines. It can feel really kind of cringeworthy sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the second that we saw the older versions of the of Stella and Magnea, you knew immediately who they were. You knew what was going on. There was something that they kind of captured, and I'm not exactly sure whether it's a performance thing, whether it's a look thing or or the way that they were styled, but instantly you knew who it was. And the connection between the two actresses felt really um, natural, I thought. Yeah, completely. I'm not sure whether the, the, elder, the older and the younger actresses worked together on characters, but it's, so they certainly felt like the same people, mm. uh, even as both of them were in completely different places yeah. to their younger character versions. Yeah. Just to cycle back round to something that we were saying before about, um, you know, not having much of a backstory with Stella. Mm. I was thinking about this and for both her and Magnera, I was kind of thinking, but why? Like, why have you been sucked into this world? Because quite often you think, oh, well, maybe you have an abusive home life. Maybe you're struggling with this. But we were never really given that for either of them. One, Stella, because we didn't have a backstory. No. And well, I wonder whether she doesn't have a family and that's why she's with yeah. Tony. You know. So that's kind of like vague and unspoken. And then with Magnea, it was hard. You thought you've got this supportive family. You're you're smart. You're kind of engaged. You're doing well at school. What, what's gone wrong here? Because it seems too simplistic to say, oh, she just fell in with the wrong crowd because, you know, Helga was also exposed to those people and chose not mm-hmm. to. But then I was thinking more about this and thought, well... Often with addiction, it's not about, there's not always like one cause, you know, like this happened when I was three. So then that means I had trauma and sure. became an addict. Quite often it is obviously that, but I quite liked that we weren't given that almost satisfaction or that neat tying up in a bow of this is why these people are doing this. They're doing this because they're damaged from this and that makes sense. I quite liked that it was open-ended and that there wasn't necessarily like a logic to why they became addicts. Yeah, I think that's probably true for a lot of people in real Mm. life that, you know, you just, you have a go and then it goes from, it just, it goes from there. I think the family life thing is interesting. Do you think there are some hints given in that? I think there are a couple of, couple of hints. So obviously her parents are split Mm. and she, she has two families 
uh, and half brother and half sister, I think. Mm-hmm. So that's something. I mean, they both seem fairly stable. Yeah. Uh, but also her dad is an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And he talks to her about having gone to AA. And even in the, the when the family meet up to talk about how to deal with Agnea's situation, it gets brought up again by her mum. I, I just wonder whether there's any kind of predisposition you know, just inherent biologically yeah. to yeah. addiction. I don't know, maybe, but it it's sort of one half excuse, I guess. Yeah, it's it was an interesting portrayal because it might have been easier, like narratively, to just be like, look what terrible monsters her parents were. Of course this happened to her. But it was so much more complex and murky to make them actually like very reasonable and very kind of understanding it made me think of um i don't know if we went to see it together actually that film beautiful boy with timothy chalamet and steve carell oh yeah that 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 wasn't us but i know the film (laughs) (laughs) that that was with someone else then but yeah uh that kind of parent-child relationship obviously that's that's almost a bit more hammy and melodramatic than this is but that helplessness of the dad trying to kind of bring the son back from the brink and Mm. you know trying to be more strict trying to be more like liberal trying to impose rules trying to not impose rules and the actual helplessness of the parents in that situation kind of did remind me of that yeah well they don't they have opposing views don't they they're not they don't know how to deal with it but mum and dad have their own ways that they think it should be dealt with so that her, her father's like she has to reach her own bottom mm. um she has to find her bottom and her mum's like she should just go to rehab but mm. i think her dad is more like she's a teenager she'll she'll realize that it's this isn't good and hit bottom and then come back to us and we can help her then mm. but she never ever ever finds her bottom like this whole the title is let me fall and she's just falling for the entirety of the film yeah i think maybe we should talk a bit about how the dual timeline plays out and the and the way that that kind of structures the narrative because i thought that was interesting in that because we were given her as an old we saw her as older magnea quite early on Mm. you kind of knew the direction it was all headed in and sometimes you could think oh well spoils the drama a bit because we know where it's going but for me actually it felt like it made it almost harder to watch and more affecting because you knew where it was all going yep i think in a in many films the the timeline would just be chronological and you would Mm. see these ups and downs happen but at every point you'd be like every up You'd be like, oh, great. So (laughs) this could be the end. This could be where she goes to rehab and comes out and she's a new person and she Mm. gets on with her life. But like you say, because we see the state of her within, Mm. I think it's within like 10 minutes, we see that she's, as an adult, she's not doing well. It it means that when we get those points, they're still hopeless. Yeah. There are two specific moments which we can go into. But when those happened, I was like... I really wish that it was, well, I really wish I didn't know that it was going to be bad because I want okay. to feel happy at this point that actually maybe this will be that 
point that things will change. So even the highs are like bittersweet. Because totally. you know what's going to happen. I also thought it was like an interesting framing for the nature of addiction, obviously, is quite often in cycles that you get these moments of hope and then you get relapse and then you mm. get rehab and then you get relapse. And that doesn't really work as a narrative arc, does it? Like in a film, just like a cycle of up and down it wouldn't make any I mean, sense. It's probably not put off a lot of filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I felt like having the kind of the future timeline helped give it a bit more shape that we kind of knew we were heading somewhere. Yeah, there's that fascination of, okay, so these this is where the two characters are now. Mm. What's What will get them to that point? Let's yeah. find out. So that, I, I appreciate that. And that was interesting. Mm. Uh, not that the the events that play out are in any way exciting and fun to mm. watch. But you also, into, if we're talking about passage, passage of time, the kind of the use of, this sounds so trivial, but I do think is quite important. The use of the hair styles changing. It's a very simple device. Very simple device, but works so effectively that you're like, yep. oh God, we're at that point, are we? Which uh, which of Magnea's hairstyles did you prefer? The early hair, obviously. Just natural ginger. Fair. I'm, yeah. yeah. And then we went through the kind of trashy blonde stage. Then we went through <laughs> the blue. Then the shaved head. When you're at the blue, you're like, oh, things are really going off the rails here. Yeah, because it's like blue could be cool, but... Mm. Well, just... I did have blue hair, as you remember. So I didn't, I didn't <laughs> want to mention anything. <laughs> Watch what but, you say. But it's like, it's a, it's, she just looks dirty at that point. You know yeah. things aren't good. It's, it's, it's pretty, it is very sad. It's like a sign of, it's like an outer sign of disintegration, isn't it? Which helps you kind mm -hmm. of be like, oh, this is, this is what's happening at the moment. Yeah, and the growth of the hair as well just means mm. that you can be like, okay, so we must be six months, a year later without yeah. them going to death. I mean, they do at one point say happy birthday, etc. Mm. You're 17 now, but it does help without explicitly saying, and we're now six months later. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And things are worse. Um, we should talk about the the sort of key scene at the beginning 
which could have been the first moment that Magnair thinks, okay, I should really get out of this. So I'm talking about the house party that she goes to. Yes. So Magnair is, she, uh, she's trying to have a, a normal family night in, watching Poltergeist, as you do. <laughs> but obviously they're all, her parents are very tired and they fall asleep and she's just like, oh. So there's a possible family reason for exploring <laughs> other avenues. I was definitely thinking something worse was going to happen in that scene. I feel like stepdads are only ever used in drama to be oh. like horrible creeps. But thankfully it didn't go there. No, no. It just went horrible in many other ways. <laughs> yeah. uh, so she decides to go and have a cosy night in with Helga. Uh, but that plan is abruptly stopped when she bumps into Celia and her boyfriend, Rego, who we met earlier on at the party and know that they're, uh, they're users too. But the prospect of a fun party, mm. you know, who's going to turn that down? This is that classic... Um moment where you're like come on don't do it you know this is gonna end badly when she's trying to persuade Helga to go to the party but I think again it's like throughout this she's not ever portrayed as like a bad person for making those decisions she's just a person that's made she's always making decisions isn't she yeah that have led to this but you don't kind of hold that against her somehow you're like oh just don't but this is the one point where Stella actually isn't involved in any of the decision making. She doesn't mm. know Stella's going to be at the party. Yeah. This is Magnea just being like, come on, a party will be fun. And then they get in the car and they do the classic teen, dreamy, let's yeah. stick our heads out the sunroof and drive down the road. And it's like, I've seen that image a million times. Also, after hereditary, that kind of behaviour is never what you want. No, probably less likely to to end in, you know, death. <laughs> that in, in the in the hereditary way by sticking your head out of sunroof. But yeah, and then they drop a pill. So at this point, the drugs are Celia's problem, not Stella's. But obviously Stella is at the party with the more of those scary looking, more adult drug takers. If there's a moral or a lesson I've learned from this going to Iceland, never trust a man with a bald head, a moustache and loads of um, animal-based tattoos because throughout the film, they are very much not to be trusted. Completely, yes. I mean, that is, I mean, that's, it's just a, it's a given, isn't it? Tattoos. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wouldn't know. That's that's not very fair to, to tattoos, is it? But they end up at this party and actually they look to be having quite a fun time Helga's enjoying herself and that doesn't appear to be drug based. And it's kind of shot. It's not shot in a kind of sexy way to make how fun drugs are look cool, but it does. It, it does look fun. And it reminded me a bit of Skins. Yes, the, for sure. the, the classic British coming of age teen drama, which growing up, I was I can still remember how I felt watching that series thinking, God, my life is just not that exotic. <laughs> You know, I, yeah. it's not that much kind of exciting and fun, but that's sort of how I felt watching this house party until it, it kind of descends into where you think it probably will go mm. uh, the next morning. Mm. And for me, one of the most powerful scenes is that moment where yes, sure. where uh, Rego wakes up. We see Celia lying across the sofa and... We just have this 
really, really slow zoom mm. into her face as it rapidly becomes clear that she has uh, overdosed and is dead. Yeah. And we just see everyone panicking and upset and angry and flushing the drugs and just not really knowing how to deal with the situation. And Magnea, again, doesn't know what to do. And it's just, it's the most devastating thing I've seen in a while. Yeah. But brilliantly, brilliantly shot. As, as you say, I think that it's very much marked out as a key, as a key moment, isn't it? In that, that shot is so um, kind of laser focused mm -hmm. to be like, this is what's happening here. Doesn't yep. get distracted with anything else. And it's definitely the moment in which the full gravity of the, of taking these drugs and kind of going down this path is plastered on the wall. You know, yep. this, is, this is the risk here. And it also seems to me like like a moment that could be a turning point for the better in that her parents get involved at this point, don't they? She tells them what's happened. Mm -hmm. And it does seem like that could be a point where it's all too much and she opts out, but obviously it doesn't go that way. No, and that's one of, it's one of the points that I was alluding to earlier. In a, in a standard timeline, this would be the point where you go, yay, this has to end well now. But it obviously it doesn't. Mm. And I think when you've seen that kind of when you've seen a dead body, but and it's because of the thing that you both did that night. Like, I mean, I don't know. We don't see Celia do much more than the pills that she takes with Magnea. But surely, like you say, it's a warning to Magnea. But she doesn't seem to take that fully on board. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that. Um, we kind of got insights of other people being drawn into this world. So you had the mum who was getting her son to kind of rob drugs for her, mm. to Tony, her son. You had Celia who obviously overdosed and that was it. And you also had her boyfriend, Frago, who comes back at the end in the rehab centre and has obviously gone through his own journey of addiction. So I thought that was quite an interesting way of, of broadening out from just the two main characters to show that it's also affected all these other people in different ways. You might not get like a full portrayal of how it has, but the hints that it's it's a much bigger problem and bigger issue was interesting. Yeah, those glimpses are, are fascinating. And, and the same goes for Helga, I suppose, when yeah. Magnea is oh, that was by, the, by the convenience door. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Like Helga's obviously just gone on with her life and is living a sort of middle class existence with a daughter who she names Magnea. And it just, it's just like she cared so much for you that she's named her daughter after you. But yeah. like Magnea's parents, she doesn't, she or she hasn't been able to support her because what can they do ultimately? Yeah. I was going to bring up that scene actually because I think it was powerful in, in two ways. One, that we kind of get like a glimpse of what Magnea's life could have could. been mm -hmm. if she hadn't ended up going down this path. Well, actually, three ways. Also, because, um, again, I think like an easier, um, maybe Hollywood way of doing this scene would have been for Helga to go, oh, uh, get away from her, my daughter, and be scared yes. of her or disgusted by her. 
or contemptuous, but we don't have any of that. It's just sadness, which kind of makes it more complex and confusing. And also, I think, thirdly, that, I mean, at least in the city where we live in Bristol, you see a lot of addicts and homeless people on the streets. And I think so often in TV and in real life, they're just dehumanised or kind of mocked or whatever. And you see people ignoring them, treating them with disgust Mm -hmm. or whatever. And that you kind of saw her from that perspective. You know, she was that person who comes up and asks for spare change or whatever that you see on the street. But I thought then it showed, you know, it gave her humanity. And it makes you think about all those people that you do see have a backstory and have a family and have hopes and dreams and everything that maybe that society is not really interested in a lot of the time because they're just seen as just addicts, junkies and homeless. And that's, you're written off. She's almost like a social leper, isn't she? Like nobody wants to be associated with her um, in that later life. Her family and her friend, I think that by that point, they've tried so much. It's only so much you can do without sort of abandoning your own life because... Mm. We, we hear it specifically from her parents right at the end. It's like, we, there is nothing more we can do. Yeah. You know, it's just, if this keeps happening, and it is going to keep it's happening. Exhausting. Yeah, we can't, we just can't deal with it. And Helga has obviously, I, I feel like Helga clearly still cares, but she doesn't know what to do. She can't do mm. anything. And so she, she humours her, mm. but ultimately has to walk away and just leave her to it. Yeah. She's got to live her own life, as everyone keeps saying. I think when we saw Magnera, like, as the older Magnera in the second timeline, I know you say, oh, she she hadn't hit rock bottom yet, but then it makes you think, was is there a point of no return in which you've gone so far down one track that you really can't claw it back any further? Because obviously Stella has got out whilst, while she was still pretty young, 17, mm. 18, but when we see Magnea, like a whole body has been ravaged, basically, hasn't it, by years of the drug use and stuff. Just the the way she looks and that performance of mm. you know her slurring her words and even her walk has become slightly like I don't know yeah. hunchbacked and that deterioration. Yeah. Compared with yeah Stella, who's been clean, I think she says for eight years, is uh, is pretty hard to watch, but amazingly performed. Yeah. Helga. Hi. Yeah, what did you to me? Hi. Hi, um. I think I'm going to be in the house. I 
þetta er peninga, þú slæs. Það sé þið bara grillaði saman með þrjá telfuna. Bara um pulsur og gengið magnur svala og ég geti verið með svona... með svona... I think also something that it really made me think of, and I know that the director has said this in interviews, is that partly it's about drugs, as in the damage that they do, but it's as much about the way that it leaves you vulnerable to abuse by other people, you know, like addiction. And I think that it is also quite specifically gendered in this case. It's not a coincidence that they're both young girls that we're watching here because I think their story is like inherently gendered, how they end up, you know, having to do sex work and being abused and being taken advantage of. Hmm. Which is something like uniquely horrifying and depressing about that as well yeah I, I a lot of that would i guess wouldn't necessarily happen if the if mm. they were if they were male it would play out differently not saying it would be worse or better but you know there would be a different dynamic at play wouldn't there yeah and yeah so in the future we do see magnea doing sex work and she has mm. Gisley, who is one oh, of the most disgusting scumbag. Yeah, he's a horrible, horrible man who she meets in rehab. Mm. Uh, so she's she's doing she's doing that, but also we see earlier in another absolutely horrific moment mm. when Stella abandons her when they've got no money, and she abandons her at a guy called Dodie's house uh, in return for some drugs, mm. and she and Magnea is like left to be abused. Yeah. And it's not it's not just the drugs at this point that have, yeah. that will, will ultimately lead her to where she is. It's like yeah. it's the the mental state of having been through all that trauma as well. Mm, exactly. And I, I thought that the way it dealt with those kind of absolutely horrifying scenes was quite um, I don't know if classy is the right word, but that a lot of it was by inference. Yes. Um, so I felt like it never felt exploitative of the actresses, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and inference was all we needed and was horrifying enough. And also you mentioned there the, the point where she's kind of living with this Gisley guy who is a sociopath. And that, I think, is a good kind of demonstration of how low she's fallen. Not just that, obviously, she's in that relationship or... I don't know if you would call it that, that situation. But he throws her out and she's clawing at the door to try and get back in and for him to kind of look after her again. If that's, again, look after well, being... He's all she's got at that point. But you think if if you'd rather be with someone that horrendous because they can get you access to drugs mm-hmm. than to be on your own, that's really about as terrible as it gets yeah i do, yeah 
it make and it makes you wonder how she's still going. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting come the end. Yes, actually. And in terms of oh, just in, when we're talking about like the kind of descent and stuff, the I thought there was an interesting parallel, like narrative parallel, in that when we see them at the start and they're Tony's dealing a few drugs out of his car, that mm-hmm. the pregnant woman is is banging on the door of the car saying, "I'll pay you tomorrow. I'll pay you tomorrow," and they're kind of um, yep. chasing her off. And then when we cycle back round and we see how it's Stella and Magnea that are the ones banging on the door of the dealer saying, please, just give me another day, was quite a neat bit of paralleling. Yeah, and they don't do lots of that, but it's so smartly done. It's like, yes, we've seen how they start and how they finish. Well, not finish, but where they end up. And you see that girl in the back of the car the second time in Magnea's situation. Mm. You just wonder whether this whole cycle will ever end which yeah which is again back to the same thing of like it's not just them affected it's a broader issue that it's like more people are coming down Mm. this chain they're just further along in the chain of events than other yeah whatever it's it's not good the whole Stella Magnea relationship is it's a hard one to decipher because Magnea obviously falls for Stella and at one point she tells her she loves her. Mm. But it's all built on this use, this using of Magnea. Firstly, to scam pervert, paedophile dads to get money. And then, again, well, it just seems always just to be to, to get money or to get drugs. I'm, n- I never, I'm never 100% sure yeah. whether Stella really actually cares for her. See, oh, I, I read it as that she did that she did care for her, maybe she maybe even loved her. They definitely had this bond, but no bond is as strong as the bond of addiction. Mm, yeah. Like, that they did, that what they had did seem to me to be genuine. It's just that it couldn't overcome the bigger, the bigger problem. But Stella overcomes the addiction and then still doesn't do That's anything true. to support or help Magnea. But I think that's a difficult question, isn't it? Because if you're recovered from something like that, can you get back involved with the people that that was such an integral part of your life with? Or do you just have to close the door and walk away? Fine. But she does end up back in that world (laughs) through her job. Like she's working at the women's centre. Yes, that's true. Oh, you're beating on my points. (laughs) (laughs) More, More impressive ones. But I... I somehow, did you feel then that you did blame Stella? You know, at the end, Magnea says, you're to yep. blame. You're the one that fucked up my life. I was like, maybe true, but I'm not sure that I would hold it against Stella almost because I think she was a different person or she, she wasn't kind of in control of her own actions. Then. Yes. I I think it's, she's certainly part of the blame. You, you can't take her... If you took her out, this whole thing would never have happened. Right, no. Okay, that's probably not true. That's Mm. not definitely true anyway. um, (laughs) If you took her away, Magnair wouldn't have met her and then at that point come into contact with the drugs and that whole world. But like you say, I do get that Stella is also in a story of her own and for whatever reason may have, you know, be there because of her own factors. But I think it's definitely more Stella's fault than it is 
Magnea's dad, which is what Stella tries to say at the end. Yeah, that's a bit of a far-fetched um, claim, isn't Cause it? Because I watched it for the second time today. Um, not the second time today. Uh, I watched it. <laughs> I had my second viewing of the film today. And the first time I watched it, I wasn't particularly clear what Stella's argument was with Magnea's dad at the end of the film. Yeah, it's quite... It's For a film that takes a long time to kind of draw scenes out that it that kind of narrative me is brushed over quite quickly yeah i think well what's happening as the film goes on the scenes become shorter and shorter and shorter and the the time between flashing back and forward becomes shorter as well Uh, i don't know quite what that means but it's certainly a thing that happens towards the end and in that scene stella's sort of trying to blame magnea's dad who is played by Thorstein Backman, who is a legendary Icelandic actor, by the way. He's in, he's in everything and he's amazing. Uh, but she tries to blame him for going to that Dodie's house and whatever they do there, collect the, collect the hoodie and take the drugs. drugs. And... I have to say, just while mm. we're on that point, that was actually the one part of the whole drama that to me didn't ring true. That seemed a bit overblown and seemed quite out of character with what the parents you know the dad was like mm-hmm. i'm chill we need to just let it all play out how it's going to play out we'll support her we're not going to go too far and then this kind of crazy like hire some henchmen go to the <laughs> actual drug dealer's house and and threaten him to me seemed like a weird out of keeping it seemed out of place to me. I totally get that. And it's, it's hard to disagree. But I wonder whether it was just there to show to what degree the parents had finally kind of snapped and were like, we need to kind of yeah. nip this thing in the bud now. And if we go there and I'm not, I, I don't quite know what their plan of action was. But if they get rid of that whole scene and, and the drugs mm-hmm. and the people involved, then maybe that will help Magnera move forwards and past it. And show that, and show to her that they tried. To me, it seemed more like a kind of vengeance moment in that they just wanted to go and fuck it up in anger. If it was a real vengeance moment, they, there's a lot worse they could have done than just barge their way in and yeah. tell him, don't do it, or whatever it is they do. <laughs> God, you'd be really good at threatening. Well, I'd just, Leela. I'd be about as effective, <laughs> about as, effective as a pair of Icelandic parents. It just feels very ineffective, but I'm not sure that they were necessarily there just to stop him. Maybe, I think maybe it was just more of a symbol for Magnea, for them to be like, look, we, we understand what's happened. We're trying to help. Maybe if we show you that, you'll respond to it. Because Magnea's not responded to any of the help that's been offered in the past. Even if we think about the scene where her father and her are sat there on just as obviously a couple of weeks after her birthday and she's been missing for ages and he gives her the phone and tells her I just need one text a day I can't imagine not knowing where my child was for weeks on end especially knowing what kind of people that she's hanging with and the drugs that she's taking and all of this and he's really reaching out to it's like he's not he's bought her a phone he's saying we just need to hear that you're okay every day and she's not even responding to that she just goes straight back to Stella kicks him in the nuts and and carries on in that that cycle again. Mm. 
þú getur bara að fara heim, ég ætla bara að fara eftir henni. Nei, pappi, ég heyri þér. Ég er með síman, ég skal heyri þér, ok? Bæ. Hvað ertu að gera? Anna! Pappi, pappi, hvað ertu að gera? Hvað ertu að draga mig, hvað er að gera? Tölum bara með þetta heima. Ég geri það, Kottu. Hann skal veina. Hann skal fara að vera heim. Hafi, eitt það sem er svo dag, ég lofa. Ekki fara, Magna. The whole blaming her dad that because because he went and I guess threw away all the cocaine or whatever it was in that bag. I think there's just a big bag of powder um, that she somehow owes him. I think so. Oh, yeah. that is quite a scarce commodity in Iceland. Uh, has to all be imported. <laughs> but that Doddy owes that Magnea owes Doddy some money, and that's the reason that Stella then takes her to Rio? Yeah, that was all a bit unclear to me. For the whole time that they were in Rio, I was like, what on earth is going on here? Yeah. And that's quite, a, quite. it's probably the the lightest and the most mm. easy and comfortable thing to watch for me, for the first sort of five minutes of the Rio scenes anyway. Again, it's, again, it's that sense of like, oh, this is what it could be. This is what the future could mm -hmm. hold. There's hope even though you know the hope's going to be dashed. Yeah, I mean, and that's what it kind of serves as ultimately. It's like, you know it doesn't end up well, but look what it could have been. Look what you could have won. Mm. But even in that moment, I was just sort of happy for them. I was like, you've, you've escaped the seedy underworld of Reykjavik. We've gone to Brazil. Like, this is the first time on this podcast we've left Iceland in the films. Yeah. Which was quite... Amazing and a totally stark contrast to the kind of cold city that we spent the rest of our time in. But it, it just that warmth and the fact that we knew they were both clean and they do seem to be in love at that point, although Stella's clearly hiding something. Yeah. I just I I allowed myself to revel in it be because I knew what was going to happen. Well, maybe that's why it's partly there. It's then it makes stella's betrayal with the with the drug smuggling mm. and the time in prison seem more profound you know that magnea really had like wholeheartedly fallen for it that they were in love that they were just on this lovely escape and they were going to go back and everything was going to be all right so then when it's all revealed to be for the purpose again of drugs it's quite a cruel trick almost that she's had played on her it's i mean that is even if stella didn't necessarily intend it that way to me it's despicable like what the actual fuck 
how could you do that to someone that, that is in love with you and you claim to be, you know, their their partner? So so Stella's plan was just smuggle some drugs in, don't even yeah. tell Magnea. But why did she bring Magnea Well, she along? says to her dad that Magnea was going to have to do it herself, that Duddy was going to make her do it. But Stella said, I'll go because I want to be with her and protect her. And then ultimately she's like, well, I don't need to tell Magnea at all because mm. we can protect her and, and I'll just do it. Although I don't believe any of that when she tells her dad. Oh, really? See, I did. I did. She tells her dad that she did it all to protect Magnea from Duddy. But yeah. She... Do you not think that that makes sense? Yeah, I, I understand it, but I she could have done it without Magnea at all. Yeah, maybe that does make more sense. Why, like, she doesn't have to... Doddy doesn't know that they've got on the plane to Rio. She could have gone and done it herself, come back, given Doddy the drugs, and then they could have had their getaway. I'm not... I'm not that is a good Not on point. board with Stella blaming Magnea's dad. <laughs> you know, anyway. But yeah, Rio, I loved that bit. And the airport scene. Oh, yeah, that, I thought that was incredibly well done. What do you think about the way that things concluded then? I, I mean... It concluded in the way I imagined it probably would. Mm. You see older Stella grappling with her guilt the entire time. She starts off in these modern day scenes with a boyfriend, seemingly fairly happy with a stable job and she's helping people. But as as we see her progressively, she's thinking more about Magnea and she's that she even bumps into her and I think just seeing her sends her spiralling and she can't come to terms with that. And so she, it leads her to, you know, sit in her car on the edge of a cliff. So I thought that she might, I thought that she might make it out, you know, that she would be, we'd have two alternate endings almost, that we'd see Stella escaping, getting over it, Magnea dying of an overdose mm. or whatever. Whereas actually what we kind of got was the reverse. I know obviously the inference that with Magnair at the end is that this is just going to keep on going probably until it kills her. But I thought it was quite well observed that we didn't necessarily see her dying of an overdose at the end. Like you think probably would be the narrative conclusion to this. It was left more open-ended in that this is just a thing that's going to mm -hmm. go on and on, on and on and on. She's in this kind of like zombie existence of not really living but not being satisfactorily dead well, it's, yeah it's basically it feels like a fate worse than death like why yeah. I, I couldn't i don't know how anyone would go want to go through that just to stay alive i mean i can't obviously i have no experience of any of this but i couldn't from a mental health perspective i couldn't understand how to kill myself like uh stella does and then I'm not I'm not 100% sure what's going on with Magnea in that final scene because it doesn't look like a reaction to having taken drugs it looks more like a withdrawal but she's sat there right next to Rego who's just shot up again and his arm is not a nice thing to look at I guess although Magnea's it's slightly ambiguous isn't it has she overdosed has she not what exactly is happening at the end but what's not ambiguous is that you know where it's going to end up eventually whether it's now whether it's a year whether it's five years yeah that it's going to end in more pain and then death like there's no 
ambiguity that, oh, you know, after this last time, maybe she will get clean and she'll go to rehab. I think that's very strongly off the cards. Yes. Maybe it's just me wanting to be positive, but because we don't see her die, there's always that wriggle room that maybe she could. But, you know, I would say probably I'm not that positive, really. It is very <laughs> much, yeah, on the cards that this is just going to go and go and go and then she'll be, she'll be gone because she doesn't even have the support of her family anymore. Yeah, I did think that was interesting, actually, that at the end we saw her parents kind of flip their positions in that her mum is saying, oh, I need to go back in the room mm. and help her. And her dad is like, no, that's it. That is the line has been drawn. We can't do anything else. Yeah, we have to be tough. Well, yeah, he's had enough. He was the one trying for, for you know, 15 years mm. and that's it. It's done. He can't do it anymore. It's very bleak. But suitably so, I think. You know, if at the end we'd had, oh, and actually they were both fine, then it wouldn't have really felt genuine. or No, and it wouldn't have conveyed the message that the director wanted to put out there, which yeah. is that it's it's not a good thing to be involved with and will most likely ruin your life you know he, he, he you wouldn't want to address an issue as big as this in a country as small as that and be like oh you could go you could just have a bit of time as a druggie and get out of it okay like that's that's definitely not a, a message anyone really should be uh, giving to the world So yeah, not the nicest of endings, but a fabulous film. A very good film indeed. And it's interesting because this was the highest grossing film in Iceland of 2018. This is the one everyone went to see. Oh really? Because I wouldn't have thought that necessarily. Obviously it's brilliantly put together, but it's quite a heavy watch. It's not really a blockbuster, is it? No, not at all. But I think it's that, it must be that, and I'm speaking as not someone from Iceland, but I think it must be to do with it being a contemporary story. It's set right yeah. there where we, where they all live. And it is a really good film. Yeah. It looks amazing, like with its kind of, it's kind of dreamy. And, and it kind of captures that spirit of teenage excitement and then ultimately bleak, drug addiction like it, the two the two styles within the film fit quite nicely and that and the soundtrack as well oh i thought it was brilliant in in exactly the same reason as as you just said that it captured the highs but quite authentically and it captured the lows as well yeah when when we needed to be hyped up i felt hyped up by the soundtrack and when we needed to have some kind of desolate despair, I think it gave us that too. Definitely. And it's it's not doing the thing that people always accuse John Williams of, of like saying, and now you must feel this, and now you must feel this. <laughs> it kind of, it just complements the scene. And whether that's yeah. the Olafur Arnold's kind of piano score, 
which comes in really early. Like the moments when they're on the bed, they the soundtrack is really quite sad and melancholic. Like it's basically just saying for forewarning you of what's going to come, because it's not like it's not saying exciting. They're doing drugs. It's saying no, no, tinkle, tinkle. This is going to be bad. Um, <laughs> but then she goes to the parties. This and a lot of her soundtrack is Icelandic musicians, and the my favorite track actually is the one when they go to the second house party which is the darker one where things start taking yeah. a turn and they're playing Hartari, uh, the Icelandic Eurovision entry from a couple of years ago. <laughs> yeah. Like that's it's proper, like heavy, yeah. s- scary stuff. And it's like, yep, this is uh it's kind of, it would be fun, but it's just got that dark edge that makes me think this isn't going to work. Sure. I just, I love all the music in it actually. Yeah, I agree. A lot more effective than the bleep, 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 bleep of 101 Records. Quite, quite. And that brings me nicely on to, the, uh, to a, a quote that I liked, having read from Balfin Sater, where he says, I'm going to read the whole thing. He says, we are not just farming cows and sheep. We also have to deal with this. I am from the countryside, but I am fascinated by Reykjavik and contemporary stories. We have a lot of directors doing the farming stories, as we've seen. Uh, <laughs> and we will continue to see, probably. I think I will never go there. There are many sides of Iceland. 101 Reykjavik was the film to give me the hope of making contemporary stories. It was a game changer for me. Which is so interesting to me because <laughs> 101 Reykjavik seems like the most flippant flibbity gibbet compared <laughs> to this. That, but the fact that it could inspire films like this is to its credit, I will accept. Yes, we, I don't think we would have had this without 101 Reykjavik. I think it has to be that the entrance to modern Iceland couldn't couldn't be this film. Yeah, yeah. You had to have that kind of mid stage of yeah. slacker weed smoking, you know, whatever <laughs> whatever we choose to call the gateway drug. Quite, yeah. <laughs> um, before we go, I had one more thing I wanted to say, and we you were asking why in one hundred and one Reykjavik they were living in a barn. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Why were they living in a barn? I did a little bit of research about the the ironclad houses in Reykjavik. And so basically the downtown area is built up of mostly or was mostly these corrugated metal sheets on the outside of the houses because and this is where we go a bit more history again. So Iceland has lived in turf houses until the late 19th century. Right? What? Yeah, because okay. I, I think I said in the introduction, like, it was relatively a, it's a relatively new country in terms of modernization, but it's been going, it's been around for thousands of years. But only in the late nineteenth century did they start getting materials to build houses properly. And it's there's a period of about forty years, from about eighteen eighty eight to the nineteen twenties, where corrugated metal was imported from Britain. And they started building these structures to protect them from the wind and the rain. Because uh, to quote this article that I read, the the rain falls horizontally. So it would just, <laughs> it would just, it would even make it into the entrance of these turf houses, which would not be nice places to live because mm. you're basically living in a dirt heap. Yeah, you know, become be cold, become damp and 
all of this. It would not be a nice place to live. So for 40 years, they were building houses out of corrugated metal iron around a timber frame to protect them from the elements. And that was under the start of modernisation of uh, housing. Well, when you said you had an update on last week, corrugated metal housing wasn't what I expected. (laughs) But I was glad to hear that little historical tidbit. Yeah, I just think it's it's fun, isn't it? It's, uh, It's nice to be informed of these things. So, yeah. There we go. Let me fall. Mm. So what's next week? Is it something a bit more cheery or are we staying on the dark vibe? <laughs> well, we discussed in the introduction that there's a lot of dark stuff coming out of Iceland in its film. Mm, okay, yeah. So next week we're going to look at another Kormakor film, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jar City, the one I mentioned. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is an adaptation of an Arnaldur Indrithason book. So it's a crime thriller starring yet another of Iceland's leading actors. Will there be any lizards in it? Doubtful. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. That was that Hattari song, Bithruth Mistaka. I cannot believe they didn't win Eurovision. And what a cameo from Olafur Dari Olofsson, who we saw in 101 Reykjavik. Even more evidence that the two films are connected. Anyway, that's one side of Reykjavik tourists don't often see. It's certainly not my experience, although I did once go to a house party downtown, which was a lot of fun. Let us know what you thought of Let Me Fall by getting in touch on Twitter, where we're at Kvikminderpod, that's K-V-I-K-M-Y-N-D-A-P-O-D, and help us spread the word and get seen by more people by leaving us a lovely review on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we begin to embrace the stereotypical view of Iceland and its Nordic sister countries with Jar City from 2006, a Nordic noir based on a crime novel by one of Iceland's best-selling authors. Oh, and this is a Cormacore joint too. I told you he'd be back. It can be found in the UK on DVD. Shout out again to Bristol's 20th Century Flicks, which is how I rewatched it. And if you're in America, it's on Amazon Prime. See you then. Tack Thanks and goodbye. <laughs>